Well, good morning, Crossway. You can go ahead and be seated. My name is Adam Lee. I'm one of the pastors here at Crossway. And it's such a joy to worship with you in song, to hear our voices um, in this room, fill this room. It's such a blessing. And more than that, it's so awesome during the fellowship time to hear how loud we all are and how hard it is to get us to stop enjoying each other's fellowship. That is so awesome. So we're going to continue in worship in looking at God's Word this morning. And as we start, when I, if I were to have you to consider this question, what were the most epic battles in history, what would come to mind? Well, you might have thought of some of the ones that I thought of. I had to think a lot longer, but one was the Battle of Gettysburg, the storming of the beaches of Normandy, and then there's one I had to look up the name because I only saw it in the movie, but it's the Battle of Thermopylae, where there were 300 Spartans that went against the mighty Persian army. And truth be told, so that you know how much of a history buff I am, when I googled most epic battles in history, none of the ones that I thought of came up. And I didn't recognize any of the ones that did come up. And the one that we're going to look at this morning didn't come up, because this is that we're going to look at isn't a physical battle between nations, but it's a spiritual battle, one of the most epic spiritual battles of all time. It's when Jesus Christ faced intense temptation by the adversary, the devil. This morning we're going to continue in our study in the Gospel of Matthew. And if you, didn't have, you don't have a Bible with you this morning, there are Bibles in the chairs or under the chairs in front of you. And you can find our passage this morning in those Bibles on page 758. By the way, if you came here this morning and you don't have a Bible at home, we'd love for you to take that with you as our gift to you. So I'm going to read and pray, but before I read the passage, I'd like us to consider the main point of today's message, and that is that truth dismantles temptation. We're going to start our reading in Matthew chapter 3, verse 16, and we'll continue on through chapter 4, verse 11. Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him up on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, 
Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good and gracious king and that we can believe in that, that you are good and faithful father to us and that we are loved children of yours. I pray this morning as we look into your word that you would open our eyes that we can behold marvelous things about you. And as you taught us to pray, Pray that you would not lead us into temptation, but that you deliver us from evil. And in all of this, in our singing, in our fellowship, in the study of your word, in our heart's response to it, we pray that you would be glorified and uplifted in a greater way as a result of this morning's gathering. We need your strength to do that. So, Spirit of God, please work through us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, last week we learned after Christ was baptized by John the Baptist, when he, came, when he came up out of the water, the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove. Then God the Father declares, and note this declaration, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We'll see the importance of this declaration as we unpack each of the temptations, because in each of the temptations, Satan sows doubt in whether this declaration is true. So then in chapter 4, that same Spirit of God that descended on a dove led Jesus, or rather drove him into the wilderness. And this driving of Jesus into the wilderness cues us in that the temptation of Jesus was not a random event. It was purposed and providential. So for what purpose was Christ providentially driven into the wilderness. The purpose was to be tempted. And he was tempted by whom? The devil. We'll pick the narrative back up in a bit, but first I thought it would be helpful to review some things that are true about temptation, as well as some things to note about Christ's temptation. And then we'll look at some specific points about the temptations themselves. So first, some things to know about temptation. There is a spiritual world. The devil and his demons are real and active. In 1 Peter 5, 8-9, it warns us, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Yes, there is a spiritual world and there is a spiritual war that we're involved in. 
I'll take us to 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. It says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And then similarly in Ephesians six twelve, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So there is a spiritual world, and we're involved in a spiritual war, and each of us is in a personal battle, and we must be ready to fight. Because there is not one of us here today that has not yet in some way given in to sin and temptation. What I mean is not one of us has perfectly obeyed even this one commandment, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. In truth, it's possible and perhaps even likely that you are being tempted in some way in your seat right now. And more than that, the stakes are high because at any given moment, we are one decision away from wrecking our lives, especially if we do not know that we are. Now, I don't mean to say that at any given moment, we might jump from status quo to murder or cheating or leaving an alternative love, leaving our family for that. No, the destruction by sin is usually step by step, small concession by small concession. Satan does not initially tempt us to drastic measures. No, he starts with a grudge or a jealous thought or a seemingly innocent compliment from a coworker. Satan is very good at planting seeds. Next, God does not tempt anyone. The source of our temptation is not God. It's our sinful nature, our, our selfish desires that are within us. James chapter 1, verses 13 to 15 makes this point. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But... Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Next, it's encouraging to know that God does not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can resist. We learn from the story of Job and his sufferings that Satan is always on a leash and he can only tempt and try us as far as God will allow him. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 12 to 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stand take heed lest he fall. 
No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. And, and Crossway family, note this. this. We often encourage us to be transparent about our struggles. Why? Because what you're struggling with is not unique to you. We all struggle with the same things. And we need each other to walk through them. Continuing on, God is faithful. And he will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability. But will with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape. That you may be able to endure it. So encouraging. Lastly, in this section, sin and temptation are not a surprise to God. We learn from our text that the Spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness. And although God is not the author of sin, sin and temptation are a part of his plan. God's redemptive plan on the cross, the death of the Son in our place, was not plan B to fix an unforeseen misstep with an otherwise perfect plan in the Garden of Eden. We don't know everything there is to know about the origin of sin, but we do know this, that before time began, God's aim in creation, yes, in the fall, and certainly in our redemption, was to more fully display his mercies and glory. So those are some things to know about temptation. Now we'll look at some things to note about Christ's temptation. First, Christ experienced every temptation that we face. Grief, pain, hunger, loneliness. There's two verses I'm going to read from Hebrews. The first from chapter 2, verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. And then in Hebrews 4.15, it says this about Jesus, the Son of God. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And I don't know what trial you're facing right now, what you're going through, and I may not be able to relate to that, but you can find comfort in knowing that Christ has walked through that already. And it's so comforting to know that we serve a sympathetic Savior and King. So in this passage, we learn that Christ was tempted in the wilderness, but we have to ask the question, why did Jesus have to face temptation? The answer to that is because if Christ didn't face temptation, he could not be a suitable savior. Hebrews chapter 5, again in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 8 to 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. John Piper, John Piper makes this point so well in his book, The Passion of Jesus Christ. If the Son of God had gone from incarnation to the cross without a life of temptation or pain, 
to test his righteousness and his love, he would not be a suitable savior for fallen man. Next, we see that Jesus fasted. In the face of his upcoming battle with Satan, Christ denied self-satisfaction and even the physical need of food so that, that he could more fully find his satisfaction in God, his Father. You can tell I really like John Piper because I have another quote from Piper here and it's his take on fasting. Fasting is a temporary renunciation of something that is in itself good like food in order to intensify our expression of need for something greater, namely God and his work in our lives. Fasting is a way of saying with our stomach and our whole body how much we need and want and trust Jesus. Maybe easier for us as we read these temptations of Jesus to picture him as some cardboard cutout that he was able to face these temptations with a godly stoicism, unfazed by Satan's ploys. And we do learn from James that God cannot be tempted. And so the resulting truth is that God, that Jesus being fully God, could not give in to temptation. But we also know and must remember that Christ was also fully man, just like we are and so was also fully susceptible to giving into sin. And yes, this is one of those seeming impasses of truth that we just have to, in faith, believe that both are true. Christ was fully God and could not give into sin, and fully man and fully susceptible to it. All that said, if Christ, being fully God and fully man, leading up to temptation, fasted. It is good for us to consider this practice when we find ourselves tried. So, if at this time in your life, you're at the end of yourself, and you have little hope in anything but God, consider spending intentional time away from physical needs and wants in order to more fully pursue God. Okay, so before we start unpacking the temptations themselves, lastly, I want us to consider these points about the temptations themselves. First, in each of the temptations, Satan has us question the goodness of God as a father, as well as Christ's identity as a loved son. Remember God's pronouncement? God the Father pronounced to Jesus at the baptism, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And for, for us, Satan's aim is to get us to doubt at every turn that God is a good father to us and that we are loved children of him. In fact, the devil claims to be a better father to us than God is because he offers immediate gratification of our needs and wants without pain, and suffering. Second, Satan is a Bible expert. He uses God's word as a weapon, but only ever in part and not fully. It's like when he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. He said, 
did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And of course, this is a twisted version of God's command because God had given Adam and Eve a full garden to enjoy with many good gifts. And then Satan questions God's goodness and trustworthiness. You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, Satan put this seed of doubt in Adam and Eve. Is God really good? If he was good, why would he hold these good things from us? Lastly, note that Jesus dismantles temptation in the devil's lives with truth. And what if Adam and Eve had done that? What if they decided to believe in the goodness of God rather than question it? It's crazy to think how things would be different today in this world if they would have said to Satan, actually, you are wrong. God is good. And he's provided us with all these wonderful blessings. And in fact, we enjoy his fellowship and walks in the garden, beautiful garden. And when we're with him in his presence, our joy and satisfaction is full and abundant. So we choose God, and we choose to believe that he is good, and we refuse to accept your lies of temporal pleasure in Satan. So now on to the three temptations. The first is self-gratification. The second, self-protection. And the third, of self-exaltation. So the first self-gratification, it's in verse 3. Satan essentially says, eat, I will provide for you. It's interesting to note that both Jesus and Adam and Eve were tempted by food. And I get that, I'm very easily tempted by food. And both Jesus and Adam and Eve were tempted to question God's word and trustworthiness. Satan tempts with, God is not a good provider. You've been in this wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights and you have no food. Satisfy your desires now. This uh, reference to stone and bread reminds me of this passage in Matthew 7 where Christ points his disciples to the goodness of God as a father. You'll recognize this. He says, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Then in verse 11, if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, who is in heaven, Give good gifts to those who ask him. When we experience God's blessings in life, we so often consume them upon ourselves without much thanks to God as the giver of those gifts. Without recognizing that those are gifts of his grace and mercy because we don't deserve anything. But God is too good to leave us enjoying his good gifts without enjoying him as the giver of those gifts. So at times, in his grace and goodness, he'll send us into the wilderness to test our dependence on him. And so often when we face hard times, what do we do? We blame God and we question his goodness. It's like the, 
the people of Israel, they were just rescued from their bondage in Egypt. As soon as they find themselves without food, they murmur and they complain. And they even yearn to go back to their bondage in Egypt rather than trust God as a good and faithful father and that he would provide for him. Rather than saying, if God could part the Red Sea to escape our enemies, then he can be trusted for food. Well, Christ's rebuttal to Satan comes in verse 4. And this references Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 to 3. And this passage is addressed to the children, children of Israel. God had rescued them from enslavement in Egypt, where it says a lack of food in the wilderness was a test of their hearts, whether they would trust God to fulfill all their needs. It says that the Lord sought to use the wilderness wanderings to humble his people and to motivate them to cherish him fully in their hearts. Verse 2 of chapter 8 says this, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. And then specifically God's aim was that in this, they would know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. And so often, we're tempted to prioritize our temporal pleasures and pursue them and to give in to our immediate desires and appetites at the expense of knowing God. Because sin makes God secondary and even a threat to our desires and wants. Well, Satan questions Christ's identity. Are you a beloved son? To which Christ responds, I don't have to prove myself to you. My identity as a son is secure and not dependent upon my circumstances. So that's the temptation of self-gratification. Now on to self-protection in verse 6. Satan essentially says, jump, I'll protect you. So he takes Jesus to the temple, which is the picture of God's presence with his people, of his provision and his protection. And again, Satan sows doubt in Christ's identity as a loved son with, if you are the son of God, Christ could have said, am I really? Satan tempts with, prove it. Prove you are the son of God by testing God's promise of protection for you. In the passage Satan quotes from is a psalm. It's Psalm 91, and the psalm is chock full of promises of protection and deliverance. For example, in verse 2 of Psalm 91, it says this, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. But can we really trust God? And so, after several promises of deliverance, we come in this chapter to verses 11 and 12, which Satan quotes. 
For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And it's so interesting to me that Satan conveniently leaves off the next verse. It's verse 13. It says, You will tread on the lion and the adder, which is a snake. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. And doesn't that sound just like the promise that God made to Adam and Eve? That a son would be born that would crush the head of Satan? <laughs> Satan was so close to quoting a prophecy of his own demise. <laughs> well, in response to this temptation, Jesus again turns to truth. And he quotes Deuteronomy again, this time in chapter 6, verse 16. It says, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. And what is Massa? Massa references Exodus chapter 17. And I have to say how awesome it is for me, and just providentially, um, my Bible reading, I'm, I'm doing the Bible reading um, called the Bible Recap. I recommend it to you if you don't have a reading plan right now. But the Bible recap this morning was in Exodus chapter 17. And Exodus 17 is where the Israelites, after be being freed from bondage in Egypt, they camped at Rephidim. And there was no water there. And so instead of trusting God's provision, they demanded of God, Give us water to drink. To which Moses replied, why do you test the Lord? And it says later in that passage that the people tested the Lord when they asked this question. Is the Lord among us or not? And so often we do that when we face temptation, right? Where are you, God? Are you going to fulfill your promises? Are you a good and faithful father as you say you are? Can we trust you? Well, Jesus knew that there's no reason to test whether God is good and faithful. He believed what we should believe, that no matter our circumstances, we can believe that God is always good. And so he says to Satan, I don't have to test God to prove himself to me for me to trust him. I trust that I'm a beloved son and that he is a good father. So self-gratification, self-protection. Now on to the third temptation, which was self-exaltation. And that's found in verse 9. Satan says, worship me. I will give you an inheritance. So Satan takes Jesus up to a very high mountain, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. He says, look at all the things of the world, all the possessions and all the accolades, I'll give it to you. And it's funny for me to think that Christ could have replied on that mountain, I remember this mountain. I remember when I spoke it with a word into existence. And these, these uh, kingdoms and kings that you're showing me, yep. I gave them their power because that's what I do. I set up kings and I take them down. Satan sought to rob God of the worship that he is due. 
By the way, Satan is fine with us worshiping God as a God, but not wholly as the one and true God in our lives. So in response again, Jesus quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6, this time in verses 4 to 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And in the verse just prior to verses um, three, uh, 4 and 5, in verse 3, God points the children to the, Israel to their inheritance, which he describes as a land flowing with milk and honey. They just had to follow and worship him as the one and true God. Well, we too are pointed to inheritance that is eternal and imperishable because in Christ we are heirs of God's kingdom and we're promised to enjoy him and his good gifts forever. And Satan seeks to tempt us with these temporal pleasures and possessions instead of remembering an eternity with God that's promised to us. I love this quote from Russell Moore in his book, Tempted and Tried. He says this about Satan's attempt to woo Jesus with these promised earthly inheritance. Jesus refused to exchange the end time exaltation by the Father for the right now exaltation of a snake. May the same be true of us. Jesus says to Satan, I don't need to worship you. I can trust in God's promise of future glory. So now that we've looked at the three temptations, I'd like to close us with a couple of points of application, some challenges for us, and an encouragement. The first challenge is know God's word. Here in the beginning of February, it's crazy to think that. I'm not going to ask for a raise of hands, but if I were to take an account we'd likely find a veritable graveyard of intently committed New Year's resolutions. But one discipline to hold on to the rest of the year is to daily read and memorize God's Word. What soldier in a war before going out in battle does not strap on his weapon? And if we really are in a personal, spiritual battle, how can we fight without a sword? And what's our sword? It's the word of God. Know God's word. The second challenge is to let us remember daily and remind each other that we're loved sons of a good and faithful father. So when we're tempted to worry, trust that God will provide and protect and care for us. When we're tempted to seek fulfillment outside of marriage, believe that his plan brings life and that fulfillment outside of marriage brings destruction. When we're tempted to get ahead by cheating on our taxes or on a school exam, instead trust the outcome that God provides us. When we're tempted 
to murmur and complain about our plight like the children of Israel in the wilderness. Rest and be at peace at the Father's promised provision. So no matter what temptation we face, we must remember that we're loved sons of a good and faithful Father. Lastly, some encouragement. Because unlike Christ, we give in to temptation at seemingly every turn. So an encouragement for believers is found in James chapter 4, verse 7. That it doesn't have to be that way. Because God gives a command with a promise. It says, submit yourselves to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And just like the devil left Jesus after the temptations, the devil will flee when we stand firm in Christ and in his word. And when we don't resist, and when we give in to temptation, the miracle and wonder of the gospel is that God the Father sees Christ's righteousness, yes, his sinless perfection when he looks at us. Because Christ, he fought temptation not only in this wilderness, but all the way to the cross, proving his righteousness, validating himself as a sufficient savior for our sins. He paid it all. And if you're here this morning and you're still fighting to stand before God based on your own righteousness, the invitation to you is to stop and to accept Christ's free gift of righteousness on your behalf. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up and close us in a last song of worship and praise. And as they come up, Let's close in prayer. God, as we reflect on the glory that you gave up, the glory in heaven that you deserved. You saw our need, and you chose to come to this earth and live among us, fully God and fully man. And you subjected yourself to every temptation. And you didn't give in to any of them. Your perfection did not deserve death. You laid yourself down for us. This is such a clear picture of your love and care for us as children. We ask you to forgive us for all the ways in our hearts and in our actions that we stand up against you in order to build up our own kingdom rather than bowing to you as our sufficient Savior. Lord, we thank you for taking our sins upon the cross for us. We pray that as we go forth 
this morning, that we would live within the power of your spirit, the same power that raised Christ from the grave. We so yearn not to return to our bondage of sin, but to the freedom of eternity that you promise us when there will be no more temptation and sin. You've promised it. We hold on to it as a promise that you are faithful and good to us. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.